For Republicans, the Affordable Care Act has been an important mobilization tool. But the GOP was unable to stop the Obama administration from implementing the law's major reforms, and after a year and a half of Republican control of Congress and the White House, the ACA is still standing. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Jonathan Oberlander, a professor of social medicine and health policy and management at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Professor Oberlander has written a perspective article about the effects of almost a decade of Republican opposition to the ACA. Professor Oberlander, in your article, you discuss the various tactics that Republicans have used to fight the ACA. So where do we currently stand? Have we passed the point where repeal is a realistic possibility? Remarkably, I don't think we have. This is not a normal trajectory for a large government program. Generally, a rule of thumb would be when you have a federal program of this size and scope that provides benefits to millions of Americans, once it's in place, it is very difficult, bordering on impossible to dislodge. But ACA politics seem to defy those conventional rules of politics. And I think here we are almost a decade after the initial fight over the ACA started in 2009, and I don't think its fate is certain. You say in your article that there have been no substantial bipartisan efforts to improve the ACA, despite what you describe as serious shortcomings in the law. Why do you think bipartisanship has become so difficult, in fact, as regards healthcare reform altogether? If we think about the experience of Medicare, which was passed largely on a partisan vote in 1965, and Medicare had all kinds of problems, and Democrats and Republicans not soon thereafter, starting in the 1970s and in the 1980s, got together and made bipartisan changes to improve the Medicare program. And it would have been reasonable to expect the same development in the Affordable Care Act. It has not happened. And I think the dominant explanation for the lack of bipartisanship in Medicare is the extraordinary polarization, the partisan and ideological polarization of the environment that we have right now in U.S. politics and especially in Congress. Democrats and Republicans in Congress are so far apart now that there's no middle left. It's very difficult to get compromise. And so Obamacare has been an existential struggle. And if it's an existential struggle, that doesn't leave a lot of room for bipartisan accommodation. And in that regard, the Trump administration has taken a number of steps to do what it calls explode the ACA's insurance marketplaces. What effects have those actions had so far? I think to date, they have had a modest impact. Some of the actions the Trump administration has taken, for example, stopping federal reimbursement to insurers for the cost-sharing subsidies that they're required to give lower-income enrollees in ACA plans really have backfired, but that particular action ended up, due to the budget math, making Obamacare plans more affordable, not less affordable. So the Trump administration has not yet really been able to make much of a dent in the enrollment in the insurance exchanges. And The same is true of the Medicaid expansion. However, there's still a lot up in the air. And if you look at what's going on right now, particularly the new rules that will allow short-term health plans, it could be that those have a greater effect when combined with the repeal of the individual mandate penalty, which is set to happen next year. Looking at Medicaid, 17 states have rejected expansion of Medicaid. Where's that heading? Do you think more of these states will eventually expand their Medicaid programs especially if they get waivers with work requirements, that sort of conservative policy approved? I think the sort of formula of expanding Medicaid, but doing so in a conservative way with work requirements 
is an appealing one for a lot of Republican-governed states or Democratic-governed states in Republican areas. That is an appealing formula. However, the fate of Medicaid work waivers is up to the courts, and so we'll have to see if, if that proves lasting. More broadly, if you look at the last few years, the number of states expanding Medicaid keeps going up, and it's gone up again recently with Virginia. There are some states that are going to have Medicaid expansion on the ballot this fall, and so I expect that we're going to have more states expand. However, all states are not equal, and when you have states the size of Texas and Florida that have not expanded, a tremendous share of the low-income uninsured population is now in, in those larger states. So while we count the number of states and we can go up 34, 35, 36, 37, what it's not telling us is really the heavy number of people who live in states that are in that Medicaid donut hole. And I think that at the moment, there's not a sign that those larger states are going to expand. The Congressional Budget Office has projected that the size of that uninsured population will increase to 35 million by 2021. Who are the people who've gotten insurance under the ACA and stand to become uninsured again? Well, CBO's projection of a increased uninsured population is largely because of the repeal of the individual mandate. So there will be some people who, without that mandate penalty, will not have that financial incentive to buy insurance, and they won't buy it. In addition, because of the repeal of the mandate penalty and because of other things that are going on with short-term health plans and so on, we could have a sicker risk pool in the market. And a sicker risk pool in the ACA marketplace means higher premiums. Now, for people with subsidized coverage, they're protected. Their subsidy goes up in line with premiums. But where it really hits are among the unsubsidized. And we've already seen some data from the government, from the Kaiser Family Foundation and other sources, suggesting that the number of folks who aren't getting subsidies, who are taking up insurance, is declining and starting to decline significantly. And I think that's a key population to watch. They were a population that was a key talking point in the 2016 elections, the middle class who aren't getting enough help, and they continue not to get enough help. And in fact, the changes the Trump administration has adopted is going to hurt them even more financially. You talk in your article about a lawsuit led by 20 Republican-governed states claiming that the ACA's protections for people with pre-existing conditions should be invalidated. What do you think the chances are that that case will succeed, and, and what would be the effect of removing those protections? They have not covered this case on law and order, my major source of legal expertise. So I'm not sure I can comment with any authority on that. The legal scholars who have looked at this think that the state's chances of winning this lawsuit are slim. Then again, we've had multiple surprises in the area of lawsuits over the ACA. So we'll have to see. And of course, the Supreme Court, if this case makes it to the Supreme Court, could look very different in a few months. We talk about the ACA, and I think because it's become almost second nature, we tend to overlook the fact that the ACA is not just about expanding insurance coverage. It's about protecting consumers and protecting them from insurance practices that were common before the ACA, including discriminating against persons with pre-existing conditions. Were those protections to be invalidated, it would blow a hole in the law it would lead to an unraveling of the individual insurance market that we currently have. And I think it would create an enormous political backlash because whatever the partisan divide is over Obamacare, there is bipartisan support in the public 
for consumer protections surrounding pre-existing conditions. So I think it's an issue you'll probably hear more about in the uh, 2018 midterm elections. And were those protections actually to be removed, I think it could cause substantial chaos in health politics. Finally, looking at those midterm elections, you say in the article that Republican-led threats to the ACA have actually resulted in greater public approval of the law than existed before. Is that increased support changing Republican tactics in terms of the midterms? It's still early. To date, it seems as if Republicans are talking a bit less than they have in the past about repealing the ACA. It's not a centerpiece of congressional campaigns as it was in 2010 and years thereafter. Having said that, I'm not sure that tells us much beyond election tactics. The fate of the ACA in 2019 will depend on what happens in the midterm elections. If Republicans hold on to the House, And if they increase their majority in the Senate, then it's a good chance that for all the silence, relative silence that we have right now, that they'll run another repeal plan up the hill again in 2019. So while the politics of healthcare have changed and the ACA is more popular and perhaps that's shaping some of the messaging around the 2018 midterms, what happens in 2019 and 2020 is really going to depend on what the congressional majorities look like coming out of November. Thank you, Professor Oberlander.